The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, if you have a bulletin, you can grab that if, you, if that's helpful for you. It's got just a few places where you can take some notes, and it gives you the outline of our sermon today here on Acts chapter 28. As we are looking, verses 11 through 28, a couple weeks ago, where did we leave Paul? We left Paul stranded on an island, the island of Malta which is, I don't know, about 100 miles south of Sicily, Italy, out in the middle of nowhere. But it's a significant size, enough of an island that has actually been there for thousands of years. Some little islands get submerged by water, and the waters rise and fall throughout the ages, and some reappear or appear for the first time. Some uh, go underwater, but Malta has been there. For thousands of years, it still is to this day. You can go and visit it, and some of our people here at GBF have actually been to and visited the island of Malta, and that's uh, verse 10. That's where we left the Apostle Paul as they were on their second ship, as they were trying to go all the way from basically Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get to Rome on a ship because Paul was being taken as a prisoner in chains. His crime, he believed in Jesus and told people about it everywhere he went, even publicly. That was his crime. And there were people who hated Jesus, hated Paul's message, and manipulated the situation and were able actually to get him arrested. And he was subjected to several false, illegitimate trials, each one concluding that Paul wasn't guilty, really, of a crime of substance, nor the death penalty, which is what his enemies wanted, so he appealed to, he was a Roman citizen, which was a rare privilege Paul had as a Jew in that day, thanks to his family. He inherited citizenship in the empire of Rome, and it's, at one point he said, I appeal to Caesar. That was kind of the last resort, so that was granted to him. And so they were going to send him all the way from Palestine over to Rome for his trial before Caesar, who at this time in about 60, 59, 60 A.D. is now Nero. Maybe you've heard of Nero. And Nero is, he's a young emperor at this time. He came to the throne about age 17, and now five years have transpired since he's been the emperor. He didn't get into his dirty deeds and antics in the first few years, four or five years of his emperorship as he was a little bit young. But just about now, at 60 AD, Nero begins to realize his independence and taste the lust of power, and he's going to begin to manifest that in vicious and wicked ways against many people, including Christians. And that's about the time where Paul's going to end up before Nero at Nero's court. So that's where Paul's headed, on trial, in chains, as a prisoner, across the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, to go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome is rough anywhere between 1,600 miles and 2,400 miles, depending upon the route you take, whether you go by land or sea. So we'll say about 2,000 miles, which is about the distance from California to Missouri, is that how they say it, Missouri? I always said Missouri, but anyway, that's a straight shot. Uh, going in Paul's day 2,000 years ago was life-threatening to do that. And so it took a long time, and then they hit a couple of storms. And as a matter of fact, as they started out, they took one ship and traveled just a few miles and got on another Alexandrian ship, took that ship, and they hit basically a hurricane on the Mediterranean Sea. And an angel visited the Apostle Paul and warned them, oh, this hurricane is going to destroy the ship. 
but God is going to save all 276 men who are on the ship. And Paul told that to the men on the ship. That's exactly what happened. And the ship became shipwrecked just near this island of Malta. They swam all 276 people to the island, and they were all preserved safely, not by coincidence, not by chance, but by God's providential goodness. He preserved every single one of them, most of them not Christians or believers, most of them pagans who did not know the true God, but God in his grace preserved the physical life of every single one of them, just as Paul had predicted through the angel. So they got to the island of Malta. Uh, the natives there treated them very kindly. Uh, there were other ships that had harbored there in Malta at the time. Uh, the time, they believe, when Paul became shipwrecked on the island of Malta was probably early November because there was an indication in the text that Luke gave us in terms of chronology about the feast had been completed. I think it was the Day of Atonement. And also because they couldn't sail at certain times of the year at that time. And even today, it's dangerous to do so in those parts of the Mediterranean Sea. So we conclude it's probably about late October, early November when this shipwreck happened. And so uh, they're not allowed to sail anymore from November to February because it is so dangerous and it wasn't even allowed. So Paul and Luke and 274 others are on this island of Malta for three months, November, December, January. Who knows what they're doing? The text doesn't say for three months. You can only imagine what a trial that would they would have to find a place to live, a place to be employed of 276 people that just show up spontaneously for that long period of time. Nevertheless, God accommodated them through common grace and the natives there. And they make it through those three months. And now February is coming up where they can get on and sail once again. And that's where we pick up in the story here. So Paul has been at sea for three plus months. He's been in chains for over two years, maybe two and a half years. And then we're going to see when he gets to Rome, he's in chains for another two years. That's over four and a half years. And he's not guilty. So let's go ahead and look at uh, verse 11 through 28 and how God gets them off the island of Malta. And they've got one more leg to go up to the ultimate destination of the city of Rome, the imperial city, really the hub, the the, the center of the entire then known world at that time, the Roman Empire. By the way, it's like I said, it's about 59, 60 A.D. at this time. And the Apostle Paul had indicated in the book of Acts and elsewhere in Scripture that his heart's desire was to be at Rome. That was kind of an ultimate destination for him as an apostle. He, he's been a missionary for Jesus for 25 years now. He got saved about A.D. 35. Then he's kind of stayed local for a while. And then he went on a, couple, a, a smaller trip, and then they kept expanding. And then God laid on his heart the ultimate destination of Rome, the imperial city, the capital city of the, the then-known world at that time. That was Paul's heart's desire for a good five years. He even wrote the epistle to the Romans in about five years previous to this event, letting them know that my heart's desire is to come and visit you. I've tried to visit you before, but uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't allowed by God. But uh, Lord willing, I will be there. And he greeted people by name. Even though Paul had never been there, he greeted people by name. He knew of Christians who were there for some reason, somehow. And so he'd been praying for five years. And now he's a prisoner and in chains and thinking, oh, he's never going to get to Rome now. No, and God in his grace answers that prayer and brings Paul to Rome just by a different route as a prisoner. And so he's being overseen by a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, very influential, uh, just man, even though he's a pagan and probably doesn't know Jesus yet, possibly. And he's responsible for overseeing and watching Paul to get him 
to Caesar. And on that ship of 276 people, there are other criminals we know as well because Luke mentioned that. They're different kinds of criminals. Probably most of them were guilty of their crimes, a bunch of thugs and whatever else. But Paul was a special criminal. And somehow this centurion who was in charge of Paul knew it. And as the trip went on for months, and it was God who used Paul to save all 276 on more than one occasion, this Roman centurion realized that, wow, this Paul prisoner, he's special. We need to watch him. We need to protect him. We need to preserve his life. We need to get him to the emperor. And they're even going to give him unique and special privileges once they get to Rome, and we're going to see that in the text. So uh, that's why today's sermon is called Paul Arrives in Rome. Paul Arrives in Rome. Finally, we're going to see that specifically in two verses, 14 and 16. And then I just broke this narrative up into three sections just to kind of help us walk through the passage. So let's just go ahead. We'll read it and just make comments as we go to see how God in his providence gets Paul to his destination of Rome where he's a prisoner, will be subjected to a trial. But that's secondary in Paul's mind because he's thinking, I'm going to get to Rome even if it's in chains and I'm going to continue ministry. They can confine me, put me in a cell for two years. I will continue ministry for Jesus. And he did. Because you can lock up and confine a Christian, but you can't lock up and confine the word of God as it is spoken from mouth to mouth or spread by the written word. And that's exactly what Paul's going to be able to do. And God is going to bless his ministry even though he's incarcerated and isolated as a prisoner for two years. So that's Paul's mindset. He knows that God works all things together for good. Paul knows that. How do I know? Because he wrote that in Romans eight twenty eight. The Spirit of God revealed that wonderful truth. To Paul, he had already penned that awesome verse to the Romans. So Paul's got it memorized, and he lives by that principle. So let's go ahead and look at verses 11 through 28. It's an amazing story. So point number one there, uh, verses 11 through 16, Paul is welcomed by believers. And also in the heading there, I put, after shipwreck, Paul arrives as a prisoner in Rome. After the shipwreck, Paul arrives as a prisoner in Rome to be incarcerated, to be isolated, to be silenced, to be beaten, to be executed. I mean, those are all the legitimate possibilities, but that isn't what happened. Paul, after shipwreck, Paul arrives as a prisoner in Rome to do ministry. That's that's amazing. And then these are three evidences of his ongoing ministry. And that first one is that Paul is welcomed by believers. At the end of the three months, verse 11 says, at the end of the three months, as they're sitting there on the island of Malta, who knows what they're doing? Knowing Paul, he's productive, whatever he was doing. He was with Luke. Luke was a scholar and a historian and a medical doctor. And no doubt Luke is attending to Paul and watching over his health because Paul was not a healthy man at this time in his life, probably in his 50s now. Been through a lot. Had malaria, probably. Had an eye infection, we know, from Galatians. So Luke is tending to him. But Luke is also putting together the chronology of the entire church from the day that it began with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's composing the Gospel of Luke, and he's composing the book of Acts. Luke is. And and Paul is providing very helpful information during this, where Paul is an eyewitness of much that happened in the missionary trips where Luke wasn't there. So at least uh, that's probably going on during these three months of Malta, and they're having fellowship and prayer, and no doubt 
they're isolated and people can't really go anywhere. So the Apostle Paul, that's a field day for him. He's telling all kinds of people about Jesus. And they can't run off the island. They can't escape from Paul. He was relentless. Who knows how many people got saved after three months on the island of Malta with the Apostle Paul? Probably many. So at the end of three months, we, Luke says, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. So they get on another Alexandrian ship. They were on a massive Alexandrian ship that got them there. It was a wheat ship. It could hold at least, we know, 276 people, plus all the wheat that was harvested being brought from Egypt up to Rome. So that was a massive ship. And so they happened to be able to probably rent or lease another Alexandrian ship. And the one in charge was Julius the centurion or the commander of the Roman army doing all the logistics, got them a ship. Luke is still with them. Paul, they get on the ship. They set sail. It had winter at the island, so it had been there three months, this ship. And on this ship, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead, this is kind of interesting, because they've already been on two ships on this trip, and Luke didn't make one mention about what the ship looked like, or he didn't describe it at all. But for whatever reason, he mentions that on this Alexandrian ship, it was unique, because on the very front of the ship, it had a figurehead, and maybe you've seen these on some old ships. It's on the very front of the ship, and it's usually elevated up in the air, and it's kind of a, and it's carved usually many times out of wood, sometimes gilded with paint or gold or whatever they had, and it was kind of the symbol of what that ship represented. And on this Alexandrian ship, for whatever reason, it was known by its figurehead that had the twin brothers on the front of it. It's kind of like a car with a hood ornament. Some of you are too young to know what that is. A car with a hood ornament. I was walking around the parking lot looking for cool hood ornaments on cars. Couldn't hardly find any. They just don't have them today. But like uh, some of those cool cars, the Bentleys and the Mercedes-Benz used to have its uh, three-pronged diamond sticking up and the uh, so many others of those race cars and expensive cars and older cars. They all had that hood ornament. That's what this is. And they were just cool. Maybe that's why Luke put that in there. And he said, this had the twin brothers. And all the English Bibles have different translations. It's just one Greek word. And probably the best translation that is most literal is the heavenly brothers. Two brothers, two twins, two heavenly brothers. Uh, One translation says the twin brothers. One translation says the heavenly brothers. Uh, The King James and uh, the NIV actually give specific names. Who are these heavenly brothers, the twin brothers? Well, supposedly these were the twin brothers of Zeus. Zeus, who the Greeks and the Romans thought was a real god, but he wasn't. It was mythology, also known as Jupiter. And Zeus had all kinds of wives and had all kinds of children and had human wives and half-goddess wives. And uh, two of his famous offspring were twins, supposedly, and they were named Castor and Pollux. These are, One was a god and one was a human. And they were twin brothers. And their figure was on the front of this ship for whatever reason. And Luke just took note of that, which, again, is just testimony of an eyewitness. This is an actual historical document. That's the amazing thing as we go through the book of Acts. The Bible is not mythology. It's not archaic. Somebody didn't just make it up. It's not just fiction. It is literal history. And if you just take the time, pause and look at the details, they can only be accounted for by a legitimate, reliable eyewitness. And this is one of those. On this ship, this Alexandrian ship we got on, it even had a cool hood ornament of Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus, says Luke, the eyewitness. Verse 12, and after we put in at 
Syracuse, by the way, I provided a map for many of you there in the pews, and some of you can just access, access the maps on your phone or whatever, maybe even the back of your Bible. And when you're studying Acts, you've got to keep referring to that map a lot of times. And so a map is very helpful for this chapter, the last two chapters, so you can see where Paul is actually going. And all these specific cities, Luke is mentioning all these cities very specifically, uh, Syracuse, Regium, Patoli, Appius, the three inns. Why is he doing that? Because he was actually there. He's an eyewitness. Those are real places. This is not fiction. This is not made up. This is true. This is reliable. And the amazing thing is the names that he's, these cities that he's naming, they actually exist today, 2000 years later. You can go over to Rome and visit the exact places that Luke mentioned. It's not like you go there and, oh, wait, where was that? Uh, it's not here. It should be right here. It's not here. That's not the case. You can go there today and visit these places, and they are well-known. And so that's going to be true of all the cities that we mentioned throughout here. And Syracuse is a real city. At that time, 2,000 years ago, it was the capital of Sicily. It was a port city on the southeast of Sicily, which is just be- below Italy there. So that's where they landed. So they go up about 80 miles. They land on the famous city of Syracuse. They harbor there. They stayed there for three days. Verse 13, from there we sailed around and arrived at, so they're going up north still, at Regium, which today is known as Regio. You can go visit there. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to another city called Putoli, today called Pazuoli, 180 miles from Regium. So in one day, they sailed 180 miles up north because they had good winds. They were cruising 180 miles in one day. So they get to the city called Putioli, which was significant because, verse 14 says, there, Luke says, we found some brethren. So there's this Alexandrian ship. We're assuming it's got those 276 people from the other ship, but we don't know. We're assuming it's got those other prisoners that were with Paul, but we don't know. We're assuming it's got uh, the same Roman soldiers that were with Julius the Roman soldier. Could be. Transferred both, but not sure. Nevertheless, Luke is there with Paul. And it says, verse 14, there at this city, we found some brethren there. When we landed at this city, we found me, Luke and Paul. We found some Christians in Rome. In this city. Now, keep in mind, Paul had never been to Rome. And so he doesn't really know anybody other than by maybe reputation or through correspondence. Unless he had some friends that eventually moved there. But somehow Paul lands and the brethren find that there's there are Christians in Rome already before Paul got there. Peter apparently didn't go there and start a church in Rome. Paul didn't go there and start a church in Rome. A, God started a church plant in Rome. Somehow. The church has been in Rome for probably 30 years now. Jesus rose from the dead about 30 A.D. Acts chapter 2 told us that on the day of Pentecost, 120 people headed by Peter began the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter and the apostles preached the gospel, and it was a Jewish feast day, including the feast of Pentecost. And it said there were believing Jews or God-fearing Jews or just Jews, faithful Jews, not Christians, Jews, from all over the then-known world congregating at Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost and Passover in 30 A.D. And they are infiltrating the city of Jerusalem, where the temple is. The place is packed. And most of these Jews are going to stay there until Pentecost is over. Then they'll go back to their homeland, back down to Africa and in the south 
and in Ethiopia and, and back to Rome and all these other places that they came from. Because in Acts 2, it tells us where they came from. And it specifically says there were visitors from Rome at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in 30 AD at the time of Pentecost. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and God-fearing non-Jews. These Jews and these God-fearing non-Jews participated in synagogues that existed in Rome. Rome had up to over 10 different synagogues, we know from history, at the time Jesus rose from the dead. It was a massive city. And there was a contingent of Jews. And there were synagogues. And some of these Jews came to Jerusalem at Pentecost, heard Peter preach. Many believed in the gospel. And some of these Romans got saved, went back to Rome as new born-again Christians who were Jews. So they probably went back to their synagogue, their Jewish families, no doubt, preached the gospel, talked about Jesus, how he fulfilled Old Testament scripture, and you could just imagine the reception that they got from all their family members. Some were interested, some believed, some were intrigued. Oh, that's interesting. Let's talk about it next year at Thanksgiving. But some believed. Some believed. And then probably the majority of the family members thought they were cuckoo and crazy and they were divisive and wanted nothing to do with them. And then ostracized them and then desynagogued them. And then God in his grace assembled these this remnant of Christians, of these Jewish Christians who heard the gospel of Pentecost and they're back in Rome, the largest city in the world. Where now they are isolated, they are the minority, but God in his grace just protects that little church and that little church begins to grow. And spread and it's there for 30 years and it is preserved amazingly for 30 years. And they haven't had the presence of an apostle yet. They've had word from Christians, maybe visitors, Priscilla and Aquila, who knows. They got one letter from the apostle Paul. That probably was exciting. They've been existing for 25 years as a church, had maybe no direct revelation. And then they get this letter from this guy named the apostle Paul, fellow Jew, fellow rabbi who became a Christian, giving them the book of Romans. And so having received the Apostle Paul's letter of Romans, having it for five years and then probably recopying it, spreading it to all the Christians, how exciting to hear by word of mouth and through the grapevine that this very apostle is coming to visit us. He is here. He's here now. He's down in Patoli. He's a prisoner. He's in chains, apparently. Let's go visit him. And they do. So this is a, an exciting reception for the Apostle Paul and Luke, where they've been minorities on this trip that's been going on for months, and now finally they're refreshed by these fellow believers. So, uh, verse 14, so they found some brethren, fellow believers, and so the, the believers were gracious, they were hospitable, they invited Paul and Luke in to stay with them for seven days. Wait, I thought he was a prisoner, I thought he was in chains, I thought he was under the guard of the Roman centurion, I thought he was headed to Nero for possible execution. Yeah, that's true. But God is being gracious. For over three months, God has used Paul to do amazing things that has actually softened and maybe even changed the heart of those in authority, including Julius, the commander, who came to realize after three months, man, this guy was responsible for saving our life. This man speaks with unequaled wisdom. This man says he spoke with angels and God himself. This Paul, he is unique. He's a man of his word. Everything he said has come to pass. I can trust this Paul. That's probably what Julius concluded, and that's why he's got this freedom and liberty that apparently he gives to Paul, or maybe one of the soldiers went with Paul. 
because he had liberty to go around. So it could be that they gave him a Roman soldier and Paul said, yeah, I'd like to go visit the Christians. And they, they let him do that for seven days. We'll make sure you're back here in seven days. Oh, okay. And to make sure we're going to send one of our Roman soldiers with you. Oh, okay. Then no problem. Can you imagine the Roman soldier who was chained to the apostle Paul 24 seven who got an earful of Jesus? You better believe. Otherwise that message gets old real fast. But what a privilege. And so Paul is given this freedom for seven days to go and be with the Christians in the local church and probably in somebody's home. And they're there for seven days and they're praying together. They're being refreshed. He's being treated well. He's getting fresh food finally. He's getting over his scurvy and what other elements he may have or elements he may have from the trip. And he's just being treated graciously as they entered Rome. And then verse 15 says, and the brethren, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Appius and three. And these are famous places historically, 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 miles distant. These people travel uh, as fast as they can to go see the beloved Apostle Paul who wrote that book of Romans. And so they have sweet fellowship. And after the seven days of sweet fellowship, Luke recounts just what a blessing it was, how encouraging it was, the trials that they've been through, the harrowing uh, devastation that they've been through almost losing their life and dying on one of the, more than one occasion and the seasickness and everything else that came with it. And now they're refreshed after seven days. And Paul or Luke concludes in the end of verse 15. And when Paul saw them, the fellow believers and had been with them for seven days, here's what he concluded. He thanked God. God, thank you. Thank you for the church. Thank you for fellow believers. Thank you for the encouragement. I can press on. That happens two times in this chapter when Paul sees fellow Christians spends time with them, and then it says Paul was encouraged. That's just a great reminder. That's the blessing of the church. That was God's design. Uh, God started the body of Jesus Christ, the church, with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. The church, a community of people, a corporate entity, other people. We were created in God's image. God is a social being. We as human beings are social beings, which means we require fellowship, interaction, with other people. We can't live in isolation. That is dangerous. That is not healthy. That is not God's intent. Isolation, being the Lone Ranger, seclusion, staying away from people. It's dangerous. It's not healthy. Paul knew that. And he spent much time in isolation. He got depressed and distressed, discouraged being isolated. And every time throughout the book of Acts, when he's allowed to be in the company of fellow believers, he is encouraged. If you examine your own life, Christian, if you uh, struggle with discouragement, depression, whatever, or you find yourself too often alone, by yourself, isolated, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. You need the body of Christ. You need the body of Christ to encourage you, just like is evident here and was so common in the Apostle Paul, and he is, he is filled up. He is encouraged. He thanks God. God, thank you for your people. Thank you for their ministry to me, their love for me, the, the opportunity to pray with them. And as a result, he took courage. Like I said, he could press on. He could face anything with the encouragement of the saints. That was one of the hallmarks of the early church that was basic. What do you need? What constitutes the legitimacy of a church at its most fundamental level? That is clear in Acts chapter 2. The apostles' doctrine... So for a church to be a church, they've got to teach the Bible, not human wisdom or any other alternative. So that was fundamental. The apostles' doctrine, prayer. There's got to be prayer with one another and for one another. Absolutely. The breaking of bread. 
which would include communion and baptism, the Lord's ordinances. And then also it talked about fellowship. That fellowship means sharing your lives. Fellowship is koinonia. And that, that's a Greek word. It means to share, to share your life with somebody else. And that's, that is fundamental to a church. A church needs to be about sharing its lives with its members, with uh, fellow one another. And be blessed. And so that's what Paul experienced here. That's why he was blessed. That's why he thanked God. He knew that this is what the church was all about. This is what makes a healthy church. Sharing relationships, sharing our burdens. All those one another's that are listed in the New Testament. So Paul's encouraged. Verse 16, Luke says, uh, then when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. So for seven days, uh, he was at this city, and then they enter Rome. And then when he gets to Rome, he's allowed to stay by himself. That's interesting, with the soldier who was guarding him. Why was he allowed to stay by himself? Well, he was kind of quarantined for several reasons. Uh, to protect him, uh, he's been, they tried to murder him in the past when he was arrested, so they probably knew about that. Uh, also, he was very special, and Julius knew that, and he wanted to protect him as well. Uh, he wanted to make sure that he was supposed to go before Nero. Not everybody had that opportunity, so he wanted to make sure that would happen. So it was a safeguard. Could be the, the Apostle Paul requested to be alone, where he could write, where he could study, where he could pray, where he could come entertain guests as he saw fit, and they granted them him that amazing privilege. So he enters Rome, and Paul is allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And so there was probably a soldier who was literally chained to his right hand the whole time but he had this freedom this freedom on a leash i want to go here i want to do this i want to see this person he was actually allowed to have guests come and visit him in his quarters it was rented quarters according to the end of the chapter and also he had the freedom to uh, have friends come and go and this went on for two years by the way and so he was able to do a tremendous amount of ministry, even wrote some of the New Testament epistles during those two years in his own quarters with that Roman soldier chained to him. So God blessed him and allowed him to have this amazing freedom, even though he's in trial in, in chains. And Well, why is he sequestered for seven days here and then for two years total? What in the world? How, I thought he was supposed to be on trial before Nero. Why is he sitting there for two years, even though it's already been determined time and time again that he is innocent, he is not guilty? Well, it's kind of like the American justice system, isn't it? You get a trial and you get a judge and you get a, you have a case and a crime was committed or maybe not, you want to defend yourself, and then you get backlogged into all these logistical nightmares and this long line and not enough judges and the bureaucracy and, oh, yeah, we finally gave you your date. Yeah, it's uh, four years from now. Oh, really? So I can't get any financial relief for at least four years. And then maybe not even then based on the verdict. Sounds like welcome to America. This was going on even back in Roman days. And also interesting thing about the Roman justice system, they were known, the Romans, for their justice system. Like few countries or nations in history. They were known for many things, but one of them was the justice system. But it is clear, apparently, that the Romans had this idea of a jail where you could be incarcerated, kind of in a holding tank, waiting for your trial. That was unique to the Jews. If you read the Old Testament from the time of Moses to Malachi, 1,400 years, the Jews, they had a justice system. They had laws, more specific laws than anybody, because that was God's law system. They didn't have a jail. You didn't get incarcerated in the Old Testament in the days of the Israelites or the Jews, like is so common for us today. Oh, he's in the jail. Oh, he, they're in the federal 
penitentiary. Oh, they're waiting there forever. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. They didn't have a jail. It's just amazing. Well, why is that so? Because justice was just so efficient and proficient and uh, consequences were meted out immediately, whether it was a fine that was given and then they had this judicial system and delegated judges and it was swift, it was quick, it was just, it was supposed to be in keeping with God's word and you could receive a fine or you could be pronounced not guilty. There aren't enough witnesses here. There's not a testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, The trial is thrown out. Could be that maybe you got flogged. Could be that you got the death penalty and right there on the spot. If you got the death penalty, you weren't on death row for seven years. You were burned with fire within a week. You were hung on a tree. You were stoned to death. You were killed. Boom. Then they'd bury you outside the city. Done. Efficiency. So they didn't have a need for a prison or a penitentiary or a holding tank. But here, Rome did because God wasn't running their judicial system. And unfortunately, we've inherited that problem here in America. But anyway, the main point here is that Paul was tremendously blessed and encouraged after months and months of physical and spiritual trials, being isolated away from the church. Can you imagine? He didn't get to go to church for three, four months. The best he could do about church was, hey, Luke, come over here in the corner where everybody's vomiting. Hey, let's try to worship the Lord together on the ship that's going up and down in the middle of a hurricane. Imagine that. And now he is blessed and refreshed. God is good. He's taking care of his servant. So let's go on to point number two, starting at verse 17. After Paul's welcomed by the believers, said he was encouraged because he needed courage. He needed to be built up. He needed to be refreshed. He needed to be motivated because he's about to face another trial. What was that? Well, starting at verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. Okay, these are not Christians. Remember I said there were about 10 plus synagogues in Rome? Could be more than that. There was a contingent of Jews who were not Christians who were there. They were probably significant and influential men. They were hardworking. That was their reputation. By the way, in the city of Rome where they are now, 2,000 years ago, we, we just know from history that it was the imperial city, the largest city in the world, the capital city. There were The population was estimated to be about 2 million in the city of Rome. 2 million, that's huge. They estimate that 1 million of the 2 million were slaves. Slaves who had no rights whatsoever. They were owned by other people. And then of the one million citizens who weren't slaves, they were called citizens. And the supermajority of the citizens lived in poverty. The majority of the citizens didn't have homes. The majority of citizens lived in the streets. Many of them were just utterly, they were homeless. So there was this very small, minute group of people, the elites among the elites in Rome, that had any privileges in terms of material possessions, money, wealth, and especially a home and those kind of things. So even the citizens didn't have much, even though they weren't slaves. So the only thing that these citizens who were poor and many times didn't have homes, the only thing they did own was the right to the fact, and they were proud that they weren't slaves. So many times they lorded it over the other citizens who were slaves. Not only that, it was an utterly pagan and debased society and city. So... Sexual immorality, false religion was utterly rampant. Probably 
beyond what we could even imagine today. Even those of us who live here in Northern California near San Francisco, where we have these very humanistic pagan cities. Rome was probably worse, if you can imagine. And they had, and the emperor was on the rise. Dictatorial powers was, was growing. Rome, hundreds of years before, supposedly started out as a republic. But over the course of centuries, the Caesars gained more and more and usurped more and more of that power. So that in the day of Paul, even though they had like 700 senators supposedly representing the nation, that was not reality. You had a dictator. His name was Nero. And he was vicious. By the time Paul got there, Nero was about 22. And by this time, he had actually had his own mother murdered. She's the one that helped elevate him to power. And then in return, he has his own mother murdered. He has his own wife murdered. That's how vicious Nero was. And Paul will get his day in court with Nero. More than once, probably. So this is the Rome that Paul is facing. But there were Jews that lived in this mix. That I just described to the two million people. And Paul knew that there were Jews there. And so he calls, he sends out word through the couriers and, and says, go tell all the leading men of the synagogues to come and meet with me. What, well, what's amazing, it says, is that they responded. And when they came to, so they did. Hey, there's a Paul guy, a Jewish guy, rabbi guy. He's all the way from, he's from Jerusalem. He was taught by Gamaliel, the greatest of the Jews. And he wants to have a meeting with all of the leading Jews here in Rome. So they complied and they all came together at this private house, and they saw Paul. So they came together, and as soon as they had their meeting, Paul began saying to them, brethren, fellow Jews, not Christians, fellow Jews, I am a Jew, fellow Jews, I greet you, I welcome you. Notice Paul is not hostile towards them. He's not bitter towards the Jews. Who was responsible for Paul being arrested and imprisoned for over two years? It was the Jews. He doesn't resent them. He doesn't have a vendetta. He's never met these Jews. Paul just had a love for people. He had a shepherd's heart. He was a pastor. He was like Christ. He loved people. Not only did he love people, he had a special love and affection and loyalty to Jewish people. Why? Because he was a Jew. He was a fulfilled Jew, a saved Jew. And he said in Romans 9 and Romans 10, verse 1, in both of those passages, I continue to love my Jewish people. I pray for their salvation and I would even give my own life, my own eternal soul that they might be saved. That's what he said. Unbelievable. And so he loves these Jews, hasn't even met them. He welcomes them. He speaks dearly to them. He desires that they know the truth. He desires that they be saved and come to know the Messiah that they say they are looking for. I know that Messiah. You study the scriptures. The scriptures predict a coming Messiah will be the Lord over Yahweh's kingdom, his name is Jesus. I know him. I've met him. I serve him. And you can know him too. That's Paul's heart's desire. That's why he's gathering these Jews. He's not calling all his fellow Jews together to plan the great escape. Never entered his mind. He is content with God's will. And that's where he is. And he says, brethren, though I had done nothing against our people, I don't hate the Jews and I've never sinned against the Jewish nation. Or the customs of our fathers. I've never sinned against our heritage as Jewish people. Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Unjustly is what he's saying. Verse 19, 18. I think Paul's assuming they know more than they do as he's talking to them. Verse 18. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. So the Romans said I could go. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't committed a crime. Like I had falsely been accused of. 
verse 19. But when the Jews objected, so every time the Romans tried to let him go, the Jews, who weren't Christians, they objected. No way. You can't let him go. You need to kill him. Put him to death. Here are the three crimes that he committed. They said it over and over again. And if you don't give him the death penalty, then we'll kill him ourselves. That was their plan. But when the Jews objected, the unbelieving Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you, fellow Jews, and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of... What chain? Well, the chain attached to the Roman soldier probably that is there with him. So there's this meeting with all these Jews and this Roman soldier who's kind of wondering, what is going on? Who is this guy? What is this all about? I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Paul's already said... Acts 23, Acts 24, Acts 26 twice, what the hope of Israel is. You know what it is? It's not just Jesus. He specifically said the hope of Israel is the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead that would be made possible by the Messiah, Jesus. That is the promise of the scriptures. That was the promise God gave to Israel. That was the promise God gave to the first Jew, Abraham. When he said, Abraham, kill your son, Isaac. And Abraham was willing to do it. Why was Abraham willing to kill his teenage son? Because Hebrew says, because Abraham, the first Jew, believed that God could bring back the dead. Because God was a God of resurrection. And that is a theme carried throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Culminating in Isaiah 53, the very specific, detailed prediction of the crucifixion, the substitutionary death of the Messiah on behalf of Israel and sinners. And at the end of it, it concludes with the resurrection. Psalm 16 predicted the resurrection. And this resurrection was for all who would believe and trust in the Messiah. Daniel chapter 12, so many others. Psalm 23. This was basic to what the Jews taught in the Old Testament and the prophets. And so that's what Paul says. I believe in Judaism, true Judaism, biblical Judaism, uh, the resurrection from the dead that comes from the Messiah who died and rose himself and provides resurrection life to all who believe in him. That is the hope of Israel. And that's what he's saying to them, the hope of Israel is why I've been arrested. Verse 22, because I'm saying Jesus is that Messiah. They said to him, well, we have neither received letters from Judea, from the Jews concerning you. Boy, the Jews in Jerusalem haven't complained about you. What are you talking about? Nor have any of the brethren, nor have any Jews come from Jerusalem here directly and and reported to us or or bad-mouthed you. So your reputation is, is fine as far as we know. That was probably a surprise to Paul. Verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, Paul, because concerning this sect, this heresy is the Greek word, a sect. Different, off-key, that's Christianity, a sect. It was small. We've heard about this sect that you affiliate with. It is known to us that it is spoken of against everywhere. All we know about it is people speak badly about it, especially the Jews. That's the only thing. Not you, but the sect Christianity. We, we want to know more about that Christianity stuff. Verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, so they agreed. So, okay, Paul, can you tell us about Christianity? And Paul's probably like, yeah, I need, I need several hours. Give me a day. Well, we can't do it today. Okay, give me a day. And they did. Okay, we'll meet on the next Sabbath early in the morning. The podium, the floor is yours, Rabbi Paul. I'll take it. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his private lodging in large numbers. Massive. I don't know what that means. Dozens and dozens. Who knows how many they could fit in there. 
very large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about two things, the kingdom of God, and he was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, two things, from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, probably gave a 9, 10, 11-hour Bible study to these Jews, these educated Jews, these scholarly Jews, these Jews who knew Greek, who knew Hebrew, who had the Old Testament memorized. But they didn't know Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that's what Paul's goal was. And so he taught the Jews from Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. That's what he used all day long, trying to show them two things, the kingdom of God and about Jesus. Well, what's the kingdom of God? By the way, uh, verse 31 says the same thing. In summarizing Paul's ministry, his preaching ministry, Luke's summary statement that best distills what Paul was all about and what he preached, Paul preached the kingdom of God and Jesus. Oh, well, how come it doesn't say the gospel? Because Jesus is the gospel. Gospel means good news. And then Luke just gives it a name. This good news, his name is Jesus. And Paul taught to the Jews in that order. It's got to be the kingdom of God first, then Jesus. Because the kingdom of God, it would be interesting to take a little survey and have you write down in a sentence, okay, Christian, define what is the kingdom of God in a sentence. Boy, I'd get some... I'd get some conflicting answers. I might even get some question marks. The kingdom of God. But that's something a Christian should know, the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is actually a theme that is introduced and begins in Genesis chapter 1. Can you imagine? And it is all throughout and developed the entire Old Testament, and it carries over into the New Testament, and it is mentioned in the last chapter of the Bible, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the overarching theme of the Bible. The kingdom of God. What does that mean? The kingdom of God, who is the sovereign. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is a realm. And in a kingdom, you have a king. In a kingdom, you have a ruler. In a kingdom, you have a lord. In a kingdom, you have the boss. In a kingdom, you have the sovereign one. And who is the sovereign one of the kingdom of God? It is Yahweh, his name. His, he is called the father in the New Testament. He is God. The kingdom of God is the realm that God Almighty rules. And that kingdom is everywhere in other words he's the king of everything he is the king of creation he is the king of every domain he is in charge he's the boss he sets the rules he holds people people accountable he's the creator he's the judge he's the savior everything that we experience in life is really under the purview of the kingdom that belongs to almighty god that is a biblical worldview that's what it's, it's an overarching theme how appropriate for us to hear that and know that today, to share it with other people, because where we live here in America, or you can even go throughout the world, the majority of people in America don't believe in the kingdom of God because they say they don't believe in God or they don't believe in a spiritual kingdom. They believe in evolution. That is a dominant worldview. Evolution didn't happen through a personal creator and judge and savior who holds us accountable. Evolution is strictly a scientific approach of a worldview. It's a mechanical approach. It banishes God from the scenario. Yeah, I believe in evolution. I mean, your average unbeliever says they believe in evolution. Oh, science has proved it. So that is the greatest competing worldview to this idea that Christians hold that we believe there is a kingdom of God. And there are two kinds. Everybody, by the way, on planet Earth is in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Everybody is. Because God is the king of the universe. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the jungle. He is in charge. And there are only two people 
in his, everybody's in his kingdom, but there's only two kinds of people. There are legitimate citizens in his kingdom, and there are illegitimate citizens in his kingdom. And those illegitimate citizens need to be told the truth of how they can gain citizenship. And it's not by standing in line. It's not through the help of the government. It's not based on anything you can do or that you're worthy of. It is by the free gospel of grace through the work of Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith. And once you believe in that gospel message, then you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, says Colossians 1, into the kingdom of his beloved son the moment you believe. So how can I become a citizen? You might be wondering if you're not a citizen. It's just believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the dominant view, this hierarchy or this overriding worldview that Paul preached the kingdom of God found on virtually every page of the Bible. And then the new revelation that Paul has to give them that they don't know in this kingdom, God, the father, Yahweh, has determined to rule this kingdom through his vice regent. His name is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one of the Old Testament. You Jews are familiar with that. Well, the New Testament, the apostle Paul reveals his name. This Messiah has come. He is here. He lived here for 33 years. He died. He rose again from the dead. He reigns on high. He is the king. His name is Jesus. And that is probably as far as they would go in terms of listening to Paul. Oh, this kingdom of God stuff in the Old Testament? Yeah, amen, brother. I hear you, Paul. But then when he mentioned the name Jesus, woo! Some people were intrigued, believed, rejoiced, and probably a majority became angry. What are you saying? What do you mean the Messiah has already been here? What do you mean the Messiah was murdered? It was crucified on a cross. Deuteronomy says that only criminals get crucified. Deuteronomy says that only those who are accursed by God get crucified. What are you talking about, Paul? And then they were just probably began to gnash their teeth and got angry, and that's what happens. So let's look at their reaction. So he's preaching the kingdom of God and Jesus, middle of verse 23, from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Verse 24, some were being persuaded. See, some believe, not everybody. By the things spoken, but others would not believe. Others continued to not believe. Others continued to reject the message. And they are going to leave in a huff. Verse 25, and when they did not agree with one another. Verse 25, let's go on to uh, the third point there, the reaction to Paul's message about Jesus Christ. Verses 25, and we'll close with this, 25 to 28. Paul uh, proclaims the promise of Scripture, the promise. And the, and the promise is twofold. There's blessing and there's cursing, depending upon how you respond to the gospel. And it's always been the case. Everywhere Paul goes, he goes to the Jews first. That's what he does here in Rome. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That was his plan. Why? Because he was indebted to the Jews. He was a Jew, grew up as a Jew, was introduced to the Old Testament by the Jews. His family was Jewish. God said, go to the Jews first. The Jews were God's people before the Gentiles. That was God's plan. Go to them first. By design. And also, he had a welcomed audience. He was a trained rabbi. He was respected. He was welcomed before they actually found out who he was. You got the floor. So there was practical benefits to it as well. So he goes to the Jews first. Then he'll go to the Greeks if they reject the message, and they will. But here's the promises. Verse 25, some reject. And when they did not agree, so the Jews there began fighting with one another. This guy is crazy. No, this guy speaks truth. No, Jesus is a curse. No, Jesus is the Savior. And it gets ugly. And they are animated. <clears throat> they didn't agree with one another. They began. So they just started leaving, uh, which is kind of rude. 
leaving after Paul had spoken, one more parting word, but, and this is what made them leave. He pronounced a curse from Isaiah on their head. <laughs> These were Jews. That would make them mad. Yeah, oh, whoa, the direct approach now. Full-on rebuke for these Jews. And he starts quoting Isaiah. Okay, you Jews, you knowledgeable Jews, knowledgeable Jews, you rabbis, you head of your synagogues who throw my message in my face and reject Jesus Christ. It's just like Isaiah said. You are hard-hearted. You see, but you're blind. You hear, but you don't hear. You have hardened hearts. That's what he's saying. And actually, he invokes a passage out of Isaiah chapter 6 from verses 26 to 27, and it goes like this. God said, go to this people and say, Isaiah, this is 700 years before Christ. You will keep on hearing, but uh, you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. The heart of this people has become hardened. They don't believe because of their sin and hardness of heart. That's why. And that's the diagnosis that Paul is pronouncing on these unbelieving Jews. And that just infuriates them. Smoke's coming out of their ears. We are out of here. And they begin to leave. It's interesting. Uh, from 26 to 27, this is the exact same passage that Jesus pronounced in Matthew 13 on unbelieving Jews in his day 30 years before. It is identical. By the way, Matthew was written in about 45 A.D., 45 to 50 A.D. It is now 60 A.D. No doubt it could very well be that the Apostle Paul now had access to the Gospel of Matthew. Could be he was doing his devotions in Matthew 13. Fresh in his mind. This curse is identical. Quoted by Jesus. But at the end of verse 27, all you got to do is, re is repent, turn, come to God, acknowledge your sin. If you do, God will soften you. If you do, God will heal you. If you do, God will forgive you. If you do, God will let you into his kingdom. They wanted none of it. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you. Okay, fine. Keep walking out the door. Don't be warned or threatened or have fear by Isaiah's prophecy that applies to you. Don't bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your judge. As they keep filing out the door. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you're a Gentile today, you can raise your hand in your own mind. Oh, some of you are proud of it. Yeah, I'm a Gentile. Well, you are the dregs of the earth. You are second in line. And by God's grace, when the Jews wouldn't accept, God said, fine, we're going to take this good news and go to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, those who were not God's people in the Old Testament by way of covenant. And Paul says, you know what? And that gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles and they will listen. How did Paul know? Because he spent the last 20 years giving the gospel to Gentile pagans everywhere he went, all kinds of languages, nationalities, and regions where they lived, and he always got a response. Sometimes, amazingly so. Gentiles. Gentiles are blessed from this message because the Jews rejected it. And that's where we are today. I want to close with this. So has God... By the way, this is the last time Paul's even going to address the Jews as a Jewish people formally because in less than... In about 10 years from when this happened, the Romans are going to come in and destroy the temple. They're going to burn up Jerusalem. It is going to be eviscerated. Thousands of Jews are going to be slaughtered. And Judaism, as it was known all throughout the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, will exist no more as a formal entity as God's people. Has God turned his back on the Jews? No. 
How does God deal with Jews today? Well, in two respects. God's judgment upon the Jews that started here is only temporary in terms of his judgment towards them as a nation. It's temporary in that in the future, the whole nation of Israel is going to repent and accept Jesus as Savior. We know that from Romans 11 and other places, even Zechariah and some of the old uh, prophets of the Old Testament. And also, it's partial. There's a partial judgment against Israel because any Jew that we talk to today that we give the gospel to can believe in Jesus and become a Christian and join the church. Not join the covenant and community of Israel, but join the church, the body of Christ. So the judgment against Israel is temporary and partial. And unbelieving Jews can hear the gospel and be saved just like anybody else. But in the meantime, God's promise towards the Jews given in Genesis 12 still stands. Israel is God's people forever and perpetually, even now, while there's a hiatus. And that promise that God told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who bless Israel, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That's a national promise. And I'm telling you, it still is intact today. And we'll talk more about that in the next coming weeks. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for the Christmas season and special opportunities we have to remember your birth and the glories of you invading this world as the God-man. Also, special times as friends and family get together and some even cross our path. Thank you for the opportunity to look to your word today. The amazing work you did by starting the church, building the church, and growing the church through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, now culminating in the twilight years of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for all that we've been able to read and study together. Help us through your Holy Spirit to imprint some of these blessed truths on our minds even today, but also after we leave this place, changing our life with your living word is our heart's desire for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.